Welcome to another year of Henry Conversations, the podcast of the Henry Institute for the Study of Christianity and Politics at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I am your host, Micah Watson, and I have the privilege of directing the Henry Institute and teaching in the Politics and Economics Department at Calvin. We have scheduled several great conversation partners for this 2021-22 school year, and I'm delighted that the first one is my friend and colleague, Dr. Jordan Baller. I could spend 20 minutes on Jordan's background and still not cover everything. He is an alumnus of Michigan State and still, I believe, cheers for Michigan State in various sporting events and contests. He has not one, not two, but three degrees from Calvin Theological Seminary, two master's degrees, and a PhD with his major field being moral theology. And because why have one doctorate when you can have two, he also has a doctorate in theology focusing on Reformation history from the University of Zurich in Switzerland. He's the author of several books and articles, an editor or co-editor of more than a dozen books, the most recent being the 12-volume set of the Abraham Kuyper Collected Works in Public Theology, which we'll talk about. He is also the director of research for the newly unveiled Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, which we will touch on as well. Jordan, welcome to Henry Conversations. Thanks so much for having me, Micah. It's a great honor to be here. Delighted to have you. So let's start. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you are up to these days? Uh, when I first met you, you were working at the the Acton Institute, also here in Grand Rapids for a number of years. And now you're a director of research at the CRCD. Tell us about, about that, that new gig. Uh, what is that center? What do you do there? Um, what, what are you up to these days? Yeah, so as you mentioned, the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy just launched earlier this year. It's a new initiative. You know, we refer to it as a think tank. It's an educational research institution founded by the First Liberty Institute, which is a nonprofit litigation firm that focuses on religious liberty cases. And so that's been around for a number of decades. First Liberty, you know, the name of it is the First Liberty Institute that always talked about wanting to actually have an institute. So it, instead of forming another institute, it formed a center. But this center functions as the think tank of First Liberty. And whereas the host organization is focused on litigation, we're focused on questions of cultural engagement, both in terms of popular commentary as well as scholarship and other kinds of programming. So um, we started earlier this year. We had a summer fellowship that we ran called the Shaftesbury Fellowship. Um on site in Dallas. And then we've got a number, number of other educational programs and things that we're doing. So it's really exciting to be a part of that you know, at the, from the beginning. I was glad to, to get down there for a day to have a seminar with your Shaftesbury fellows. And so if you're listening to this and you know of a um, senior or so in college or new graduate out of college looking for uh, a residential um, program over the summer, how would people find out about the Shaftesbury Fellowship? Yeah, we our, our website is up now at crcd.net. So all the information about our programs are there, including the Shaftesbury Fellowship, and it's a 10-week program. We'll be running it again next summer, Lord willing. So it involves both a combination of seminars, the kinds of things that you came down to, to run the discussion for. We have a seminar every week that's on a set readings, and then they also are working on their own research projects. So these are going to be students who are looking to do greater uh, continued work in uh, academic setting of some kind. So we had people from a number of different fields in terms of their disciplinary backgrounds, but everybody who had some sort of goal to continue on doing graduate work or 
engaging in academic pursuits of some kind or another. And so the idea is that we pair each fellow up with a, a mentor, they work on their own research project, and then hopefully have something that they can have at the end of that summer that will allow them to either you know, submit that as a writing sample for an application or publish it uh, and buff up their CV a little bit in that way. So that's how the Shaftesbury Fellowship has been envisioned. And, and so far, you know, after year one, I think it's gone pretty well. And so we're going to continue to do that as one of our signature programs. The CRCD is headquartered in Dallas, Texas, but you are still living in the Mitten in West Michigan here in Grand Rapids. Uh, and, and as with uh, degrees, you also collect some titles. So you haven't cut ties with Calvin Seminary or Calvin now University. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you're doing at Calvin. Yeah, so the CRCD is actually is going to have offices in D.C. and in at FLI headquarters in Plano, Texas, and I'm still here in Grand Rapids full time, so I'm doing a lot more traveling than I had been before in my previous roles. And I do still work and do important things, I think, with Calvin Seminary and Calvin University. So one of the things that I'm engaged in at Calvin is running the Kuiper Conference for the last few years. There's been a Kuiper Conference that's been held annually on campus at Calvin University. The pandemic year of 2020 was was going to be the centennial of Kuiper's death. He died in 1920. He's a, an important late 19th and early 20th century Dutch Reformed theologian. I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit more about him in a minute. Anyway, last year was going to be the centennial year of his passing, and so there was a big international congress that we had helped develop and plan, so those plans had to be postponed. But the hope is that next spring, the Kuiper Conference will return to Calvin University and Calvin Seminary. And so, yeah, I've had the privilege for the last few years of helping to plan and execute those events. And in fact, we have those dates on the books, right? So if, if people were thinking about wanting to come to Grand Rapids and attend the Kuiper Conference, they'd be looking at April 5th through the 7th, COVID and all other things permitting. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, we're going to have to be agile more agile than I often am on the basketball court, I think, but uh, well, that's a low we'll bar. see how things go. Um, but that's the plan, right? Is, is next spring, we're going to relaunch the Kuiper Conference in person. The dates are April 5th through 7th. And one of the things that we work on together, Micah, is coordinating that with the Henry Symposium. And the dates for that are April 7th through 9th, if I have that correct or That's right. But you've also buried the lead, which is, you know, another title that you have is associate director this year of the of the Henry Institute itself. Right. So in addition to working with a think tank, CRCD and coordinating the Kuiper Conference this year, you are formally associated with the Henry Institute. So congratulations. It's a little (laughs) self-serving for me to to say that. But uh, the Henry Institute obviously has been uh, we're going to be celebrating its 25th year this April as part of the Henry Symposium. And and those two conferences, there'll be a hinge event. They really go together. One could get a full week of intellectual feasting by going to both. But why would one think that the, the Kuiper conference and kind of this idea of neo-Kuiperian or neo-Calvinist thinking would also fit well with what the Henry Institute has been up to or the ethos of what the Henry Institute has been doing with this intersection of, of Christianity and, and public life? Yeah, so the Kuiper Conference and my work as a scholar and a intellectual on Abraham Kuyper and the Reformed faith and public life has focused on public theology and the importance of the Reformed world life view, the Reformed tradition for our contemporary world. And in my understanding, that aligns um, pretty closely. It's not a, it, 
it overlaps to a great extent with with a focus on religion and public life, Christianity and politics that animates the work of the Henry Institute. So I'm looking forward to exploring ways of working more together. I know we've got some plans besides just this conference and this current podcast uh, in terms of things that we can do collaboratively, but I'm looking forward to having this as a, a partnership going forward in a way of doing fruitful work in terms of bringing this important tradition to bear on all the challenges that we face in, in, in the world today. So you just wrapped up this project with Abraham Kuyper uh, and, and this 12-volume collection of, of his works, and you've been an editor in that project and, and helped really see that from the beginning to its, to its culmination. Can you tell us a little bit about that project, and then we'll segue from that into questions about just Kuyper generally and his place in, in today's discussion, both here at Calvin and West Michigan, but also uh, nationally, he seems to pop up from time to time. So tell us a little bit about this, this project you've been involved in, and then, and then we'll talk a little bit about Kuiper's relevance for, for Christians and, and non-Christians today. Yeah, so the project started really over a decade ago at the Acton Institute. And one of my colleagues there at the time, Stephen Grable, had this vision. At the time, the goal was to translate Kuiper's volumes on common grace, which are three big volumes, certainly a, a large enough translation project on their own. And so then he got increasingly involved with Kuyperians and neo-Calvinists and people who are interested in Dutch Reformed theology all over the world. And as these conversations were going on, it was clear that there was both an appetite and the expertise and even the resources to do something even more robust. And so in a kind of organic way, a much broader project developed in terms of the vision. So you can see some early, we, you know, there were some projects that we had in terms of publishing early on about 10 years ago, one of these was a, a small volume called Wisdom and Wonder, which was 10 chapters of this larger work on common grace that we published. Uh, and as it took shape, it turned into this massive 12 volume series, which, you know, I don't have the exact numbers, but I'm, my estimate, I would say safely more than 2 million words, perhaps a great deal more than that in English translation, just given the size of some of these volumes. And so that's how things kind of, you know, developed over the past decade. The first volume of this series came out, I think it was in 2015, at the end of 2015, our program that was Kuiper's commentary on the anti-revolutionary party's political platform, the version that came out in 1880. That was the first volume in this series. And since then, you know, we've continued publishing. Um, and the final 12th volume is set to appear, I think, first quarter of next year. So just in time. I think for the Kuiper conference, it's going to appear. So that's been an exciting, engaging and challenging project to be working on basically over the last 10 years. Um, I could say a lot more about the contents of what's in there. The idea really was to bring Kuiper himself to an English speaking audience. You know, even this, this size of a translation project really is just a, a fraction of what Kuiper himself wrote, but it certainly enhances what's available in terms of people, in terms of access to Kuiper's own thinking and writing and work in his own words relative to what we had before. I mean, I would still say something like Lectures on Calvinism, the Stone Lectures from 1898 is a great place to get a thumbnail sketch of everything that animated Kuiper. But if you want to dig deeper, now there's much more material available in all kinds of different topics and genre in this Abraham Kuiper collected works in public theology for the first time in English. 
Yeah, so you mentioned the Stone Lectures, the, the lectures on Calvinism that he gave at Princeton Theological Seminary, 1898. Yep. Um, and then he also came and visited Grand Rapids on that tour. It struck me between between your involvement with Kuiper and your association with the Henry Institute and Rich Mao being a, a senior research fellow as well. We've got a couple pretty pretty great Kuiper folks here associated with the Henry Institute and just Calvin and, and Calvin University and Seminary. So, so Kuiper's name is certainly well known around here, West Michigan, Calvin. Uh, we have a Kuiper College here in Grand Rapids. But I, I sometimes, and I'm, I'm guessing some people listening to this might wonder what all the fuss is about. They're not familiar, perhaps, with all of this work from Kuiper. They may find the Stone Lectures to be a, a good place to start. But what's a, what's a quick pitch for why people today should consider getting to know Kuiper a little bit more? What's all the fuss about? Why are, why are people like yourself, and, and I, I'm a fan of Kuiper, I um, teach the Stone Lectures at Calvin and, and think that he's a great resource for Christians, but what's a, what's a quick pitch for why someone who doesn't know much about Kuiper should, should consider knowing him better? Yeah, I mean, I think one way of answering that is biographically for me. I mean, I didn't grow up in the Dutch Reformed tradition. When I actually first started studying at Calvin Seminary, I was not Reformed, I was Lutheran. I really had no idea who Kuiper and Bob Inc. were. I came to a school that had a good academic reputation, but also had a reputation for biblical fidelity. And those were a couple of the key factors in terms of going to graduate school and theology for me. And so it was by providence, looking back on it, that I came to an institution that afforded these kinds of opportunities and exposure to these kinds of sources, which are still not very well known outside of the the Calvin University and CRC-affiliated kinds of institutions. I mean, some people have heard of Kuiper, but you know they're not very familiar with him. And I'll say even at the time, I mean, I started at Calvin really over 21 years ago. These were, Kuiper and Bob Inc. were pictures that were up on a wall in one of the classrooms, but it wasn't like we were reading a lot of Kuiper and Bob Inc. in our classes. It was more of a kind of a cultural Kuiperianism than it was a direct access to the thought of these important figures. At the time, John Bolt at Calvin Seminary had just started a publication effort to bring Herman Bobbing's Reformed Dogmatics into English, which is really a seminal moment in 21st century Reformed theology. Now the Reformed Dogmatics are complete, the four volumes, and they're working on Bobbing's Reformed Ethics. So between these important translations of Bob Inc. and the work that's been going on over the last 15 years or so, the vision, the hope is that there's a new kind of engagement with these sources, which had become, you know, to the extent that they were unknown outside the community, they were so well known, at least in terms of people's own self-perception of these figures, that they were no longer that interesting or compelling. So, you know, the idea is, you know, a lot of what had passed for Kuyperianism or Neo-Calvinism in Calvin College, then at the time in Calvin Seminary, wasn't really that reflective of what Kuiper and Bobbing themselves thought or taught. And so the goal with these projects was to, you know, get back to the sources, struggle with them, engage with them on their own terms, and and hopefully breathe some new life into this important tradition, which has had such an influence, even even if narrow, it's such a deep influence on a, on a number of important institutions. And and, and as I'm listening to that, I'm thinking that's exciting. I'm a professor, yeah. right? So that makes sense to me that I, I'm not going to do this. But let's say that I were to assign extra credit to one of my classes, which has 25 freshmen in it. Yeah. Right. So 18, 19 year old first year students at, at Calvin who may not find that as compelling. Like, what what's the pitch? Why why do these guys? Why and who's Bobbing? Right. So I'm, right. so some of our listeners are going to of course know who Bobbing is. What's Kuiper do for the for the 18, 19 year old? You are a little older than that. 
when you encountered him at Calvin Seminary, maybe mid twenties, I'm guessing, and <laughs> and and precocious as a young Jordan Baller at that point. How do I how do I take that pitch and translate it for young people? Fair enough. I mean, I didn't really answer your question. I was I was uh, took that as more of an excuse to give a little bit of a biographical um, tour of some of my own institutional context and in, in history and so on. So, I mean, the thumbnail answer, as brief as I can put it, is Kuiper and Bob Inc. But you know, we want to talk about Kuiper more. That's fine. Kuiper is a person who is thought deeply, informed by scripture and the reform tradition about all kinds of subjects. So he's an interesting and challenging uh, and edifying dialogue partner. One of the things that I was encouraged when I was in seminary was to find a couple, one or two or three great theologians from the history of the church that you could maintain an active dialogue with in your own reading. And certainly Kuiper qualifies. That doesn't mean you know, that everything you find in Kuiper, you agree with idolizing Kuiper or anything like that. But you'll find as you engage more and more of his works that he has thought pretty much about everything. And most of what he's thought has been pretty deep. Not always. Sometimes it's a superficial, polemical or kind of rhetorical engagement. But even there, he's fun to read. So he's an interesting figure in that sense. Right. So in that sense, he, you know, he reads like a little bit like Martin Luther, right? Luther's a great, another one of these great figures, or John Calvin, or Aquinas, or Augustine, or somebody who's thought deeply and widely about all kinds of great things and is inspiring in that sense. On a more specific point, I would say Kuiper can help serve as a kind of a corrective to a lot of the emphasis in 20th century evangelicalism more broadly. So I was brought up Church of Christ. As I said, I was Lutheran before I came to Cal, or when I came to Calvin. Kuiper really provides a important framework. I don't think it's the only way of articulating it, the only compelling way, but I do think it is a compelling way of articulating the significance of our life on earth now in terms of its eternal destiny. So his work on common grace, for example, and how he articulates the relationship between common and special grace or between you know, God's preserving work in the world and his redeeming work is a compelling way for understanding what the role of the Christian is in sure. not just waiting sort of for the eschaton to come along or Christ to return again, as important as those things are and as defining as those things are, but what is the significance then of, of our salvation for our life today? And Kuiper presents a really compelling and I think authentic expression of a reformed answer to those questions. And so, um, in brief, that's why I find him a, a particularly compelling dialogue partner. He's asking big questions and struggling with them in a really informed and erudite and yet accessible way. And so, um, you know, these are questions that all of us have to struggle with, um, whether you're 19 or 90. So, yeah. you know, he's good for well, it. It strikes me if we, if we think about the the um, the breadth of, of different Christian churches and and kind of streams in the broader river of Christianity. We have, you mentioned evangelicals. That's the you know tribe I come out of. And in, in that part of the church universal, there can be, because there's such an emphasis on getting saved and born again and, and being evangelical and evangelizing, almost a titanic sort of view that what we really need to do is get people saved. This, this world is sinking. And thus, why are we rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic, right? It's almost, a, it's so much a focus on the next world. And then there's a counter to that, which is people who are focusing more on, you know, the things that we should be doing on this earth while we're here, kind of a Matthew 25 thing where we're visiting the prisoner and cleaning water. And that can 
achieve a focus where you're actually then neglecting the evangelism, right? And am I right in hearing you say a little bit that Kuiper gives us a model of how to care about both those things, the life to come, as well as what God calls us to here, given what he's done for us salvifically. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. And that's not to say that anyone who has claimed to be a Kuiperian hasn't erred in one extreme or another in the interim, or that he can't find examples from his, you know, from his writing or his life and work that do not fit the model of how those two things ought to be properly integrated. But at his best, I do think Kuiper is, first of all, very sensitive to that tension or the necessary relationship between these two concerns, these two dimensions of our faithful discipleship. He's not only sensitive to it, he addresses it head on directly and says, well, this is how we need to hold these two things together. And so you've got, you know, different figures and traditions after Kuiper that emphasize one or more aspect of his thought. And in in some ways that can be a kind of reductive version of it, you know, a version of what passed for Kuyperianism that I was talking about earlier was simply a kind of, you know, Niebuhrian Christ transforming culture model. Um, and there is a sense in which that, that an authentic Kuyperian approach to the world should motivate that kind of responsible and faithful action in the world, but it doesn't reduce discipleship to that. Right. Sure. And it doesn't say that our hope is found in what we do and the, the extent to which we can transform the world. Well, let me see if I can brag on your guy a little bit here, um, because you, you've laid out, I think, very nicely, the intellectual accomplishment, the theological accomplishment is puts him on a par with these other just great figures. But he's not just someone who's sitting in his armchair right. thinking deep thoughts, right? So thinking of if someone's interested in journalism, uh, Kuiper's a rich resource. If someone's interested in higher education and founding a university, Kuiper's a great resource. If someone's interested in being in politics, the guy was prime minister of the Netherlands, right. for goodness sake, right? If someone's interested in um, in ecclesiology and getting involved in church politics, he started to help start a new denomination. I mean, the guy's list of things that he did, all the editorials yeah. that he wrote. Um, and then he's also, you know, he's, he's married and a, and a father of seven. That may not be his shiningest uh, point in terms of as a parent, like as a parent or father, but it's pretty remarkable what he was able to accomplish institutionally, as well as the the incredible intellectual accomplishments that that he had. Yeah. And just speaking from my perspective, I mean, I've worked at a a so-called think tank for a couple of decades now. You know, that is also a huge part of what attracts me to Kuiper as a, as a person, um, he did lots of things and everything he did, he thought pretty deeply about and everything that he didn't do, he still thought pretty deeply about. So even the stuff that he didn't have great experience with personally, he speculated about, and some of that's still also valuable. But if you focus on what he actually accomplished and, and what he thought and all those sorts of things, yeah, he's a great model in that sense of, you know, someone who's been given a great deal of gifts and ability and trying to live out faithfully that in, in their own life. So it's not that everyone is called to be Abraham Kuyper and do everything that Abraham Kuyper did. We're not gifted like he was. I mean, he was a real genius in that sense, a, a superlative talent in, in able to accomplish at such a high level all of these things in all of these different areas. But in our own areas, in our own callings, we can, we can seek to live that kind of faithful uh, integration of our faith and, and our work. Yeah, I mean, I think of Kuyper 
especially in terms of some of the biographical stuff, there's, there's really a lot of positive and also a lot of negative lessons to learn from him too. So it's not the case that you've got this person who's as successful and everything that he ever did never faced any challenges or ever made any mistakes. You know, he was a fallible human like all of us and, and having these great endeavors that he undertook, uh, learned a lot, right. I think himself from his failures, but we can learn a lot from, from the ways in which that he was unsuccessful or failed too. Yeah, and we we both are admirers and have been singing his praise. But you've rightly said a couple times now that he's he's certainly not perfect. He's got weaknesses. What are some of those weaknesses in his thought, or things that you know, if we were to join him in a room today, what are things we'd say? You know, uh, might you want to rethink this? Now, I'm sure he, he he gets rightly hit on some things, and I think he probably gets unfairly hit on some things when people are being critical. Can you say a little bit about that aspect of things? Yeah, I mean, he's a controversial figure more broadly in, the, in terms of the, the people who know him in the Dutch reform tradition and the reform tradition more broadly. So, you know, theologically, there are critiques of his program that his idea of common grace, his articulation of common grace, as much as he claims it to be grounded in the reform tradition and cites Calvin and the Belgian Confession and the Canons of Dort and the Heidelberg Catechism as a doctrinal ground, and as much as he roots what he's articulating in common grace from scripture, it really is much more of an innovation and something that's new to the tradition and is an entry point for all kinds of bad things. That's one le- what's one line of critique of Kuiper is that he's basically legitimizing a triumphalist kind of transformationalist approach to culture. I think that is more true of, of certain unbalanced receptions of, a Kuip- of Kuiper than it is for him himself. If you read, he's definitely aware of the dangers but that's one aspect, right? The, the, kind of a theological critique of Kuiper on various points. I mean, he was a controversial figure on other theological doctrines too. Would I be right in th- saying this is this is going to be coming from more conservative quarters? Is that not even Yeah, right I mean, term? I'm thinking particularly of somebody like David Van Drunen and the Two Kingdoms yeah, critique okay. and all this sort of thing, right? I mean, that, you know, within a certain kind of theological conversation that has had a lot of cachet over the last 10 or 15 okay. years. In terms of more mainstream approaches to Kuiper, um, yeah, even just reading the Stone Lectures, you'll see all kinds of things that you're going to disagree with or that are going to be off-putting. You know, Kuiper, as much as he was a kind of a romanticist and, and celebrated diversity, thought uniformity was a curse of modern life. That's the title of one of his addresses. He celebrated a certain kind of understanding of diversity, could say really horrible things about people who were not European, about people of color or people from the East. Some of that's, you know, his, his, his 19th century setting, but some of that's attributable to his own ways of thinking as well. So race is a big issue that comes up with Kuiper. Gender and sexuality is another one. I mean, he was uh, a man of his times in that sense and defended a kind of, you know, what you might now call a strongly complementarian view. Um, we were talking about his, his family life earlier. I mean, he's got these great reflections on the role of the family in terms of its significance for culture its its civilizational significance as an institution and then when he's writing on the family you know he's got this very aristocratic vision that he's writing out of right so he talks about you know not just the roles of parents with respect to children and children with respect to parents but the role of servants within the household well that's not going to resonate you know with a very right. thick slice of people who are going to be reading Kuiper today so he's writing in that sense out of a very particular time and place and out of a very kind of specific model much of it culturally defined of what the family meant even there um there may be some things to learn positively or negatively but you know he like all of us are creatures of their times as well 
Yeah. Well, I, I wonder if you could help me out with thinking about the issue more generally, which is something that I think is very much in the water today with our national conversation, social media, but also in the classroom, which is how do we interact with, appreciate, evaluate, criticize these figures in the past who may have had great gifts and said great things, but also have these things that we read and we kind of cringe. Um, and it strikes me that we have a continuum here. On the, on the one hand, we can go full out super critical. And, you know, this is probably a cousin or related to the cancel culture sort of thing, such that we, we're not going to read anyone. Like I saw a tweet recently from someone saying, you can, you can have a great bookshelf of theologians without Jonathan Edwards because he held slaves. And, and so we shouldn't read Jonathan Edwards. It's, it struck me you can go pretty far that way, in which case it strikes me your bookshelf's going to get pretty thin. Uh, or you can kind of go this other way, which is to just sweep under the rug these these problems that different thinkers had, whether it be in their personal lives or in their thought, uh, such that we're apologists and can't be critical. And all of this, I think a blindness that we can have in modern times, uh, C.S. Lewis called it chronological mm-hmm. snobbery, which seems to be blind to the notion that, you know, 100 years from now, we'll be subject to the same sort of uh, criticism or, or lens. So to wrap all that up, hopefully in a more coherent question, how do you go about, or what advice you would have for myself, for young people today who want to be fair to thinkers of the past, not just excuse everything as being because of their time, but also not holding them up to the exact same standards that we know about today, at least in terms of saying we wouldn't learn from them, right? Um, anyway, that's a convoluted mess of a question, but I hope the... Uh, <laughs> it comes across as something you can answer. Yeah, I'll answer the spirit of the question, if not the letter. How about that? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great point, certainly related to Kuiper, and as you know, more broadly for any figure, really of any time. I mean, we're dealing with fallible and fallen human beings when we're reading anybody. So it depends what your standard is and you know how fairly you're going to apply that standard to determine who's in and who's out and who's worth reading and who's not. And there's all kinds of contingent and absolute kinds of considerations that have to go into those things, not least of which the limits of our own time, right? We can't read everybody and we can't read everything. So how do you prioritize? But just in general, I would say, you know, you invoked Lewis. I would, I would agree with the kind of basic approach that Lewis has, which is that every age and every era has its own blind spots and weaknesses and and shortcomings. And one of the ways you learn about what those are in your own time is by encountering the views from other times and taking them on their own terms, first of all. And then you can identify what's, in many cases, what's wrong with the, you know, the things that they didn't see, but they can reciprocally help you see things that you're not otherwise going to see. And just in terms of Kuiper's own project, I think of a couple of analogies. One would be his approach to common grace, which is like an understanding of the good things that are out there still in the world, even though it's a fallen world, right? Like if that's your posture towards the world, then that should be your posture towards the things and the people that are in that world. We're all fallen. And yet anything that exists in some sense captures some truth about the world or God and that we can learn something from it, even though it might ultimately be something that we condemn or it doesn't capture the full truth or that we criticize. So that's a general kind of posture. And I think that, you know, his articulation of common grace combined with an understanding of the antithesis between, you know, the world and this and the church, the spirit and the flesh, Christianity and and non-Christianity can give us that kind of a, a basic hermeneutical posture that there is something to learn everywhere, but you do have to have this kind of informed 
sophisticated, I don't know if that's the right word, but at least um, sensitive approach to things where you're constantly comparing them to what you do know is true on the basis of, of God's word, for example, as, as the kind of key, the thing that is not going to change. And then in terms of like Kuiper's own approach to things, for example, so Kuiper is known, you know, broadly as a neo-Calvinist, but if you look at his own engagement with say Calvin, for example, it's not as if he doesn't have anything to criticize Calvin for, you know, he'll celebrate right. Calvin in many ways. And some of that's for rhetorical effect, or it's because he's got a, a use that he's putting Calvin to in his own particular popular project that never happens no, yeah. anymore by the way right but at the same time you know he'll say calvin was wrong on this point right which right. you can find conservative or traditional kind of reformed places you know facebook groups for example where you you couldn't really get away with even saying calvin was wrong on some point or another and so i would just take that kind of a posture and, and apply that to kuiper himself and i think he would welcome it and say yeah you don't need to copy exactly everything that i said and agree with me learn from it sure. and criticize it where you think it's appropriate but do so you know out of the conviction your own convictions as they're informed by scripture and your conscience and so on and don't use that as an excuse not to engage with somebody that you uh find right. odious or disagreeable your comments there remind me of a couple things one is how Kuiper deals with the Servetus question for Calvin. Yeah. Uh, and that's in the Stone Lecture dealing with politics and, and noting that when it comes to religious liberty, right, which is, you know, you're now working for a think tank dedicated to the foundations and implications and importance of religious liberty, uh, that he was, he was quite willing to criticize his own tradition with regard to how it handled persecution in the beginning in particular. Yep. It also reminds me a little bit of, uh, of, and, and here I'm not the Calvin scholar, um, but in looking at the institutes, you know, Calvin has this dedication to the French king. And in that dedication, he, he says, some people have said that we don't care about the church fathers, right? That we ignore the church fathers. And he says, no, no, we do care about the church fathers. We look at them, we read them. In fact, he, he says, if we look, if, we, if I wanted to, I could show that we're closer to what they said than, than our yeah. adversaries. Or at least the best of the um, fathers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah, of course. But then he, then he says, you know, but we look at scripture first, right. right? That scriptures are grounding. And then we look at the fathers and, and really that's, that's a Calvinist way of reading Calvin or Kuiper yep. that of course we glean what we can from these great figures, but we have been called each generation has to work through these questions ourselves, you know, going back to scripture with the help of these great figures who have come alongside us. So one could be listening to our conversation thus far and, uh, and imagine that this is you and I are friends, that this is kind of the only thing that we ever talk about or this is the only sort of work that you do. And truth is that that's actually not the case. You are a, you're a sports fan. You actually play sports now and then. You also write on popular culture. So some of what we said here, we've said, you know, it's good for people to perhaps pay a little bit more attention to theology, to read Kuiper or Bob Inc. And we've encouraged people to, to, to do that. Why might academics like yourself, these scholars who are, who are deep into these theological discussions and how things apply, um, why do you care about popular culture and why do you write about it sometimes? Well, I mean, for, for a number of reasons, one of, one of which the culture that you're in forms you. And so you should know something about it. You know, this is something I learned from Kuiper as well as others, right? That um, you don't exist in a vacuum. And, and just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that your broader humanity or your, your grounding in a particular time and place 
nation and culture, all of those bonds become erased or evaporate. So, you know, we live in a particular time and place and it's important. And I think part of the Christian calling to responsibly engage that broader culture, look for the good things that are out there where they're there and celebrate them, help frame them in ways that are edifying and then criticize the things that need to be criticized in a way that's edifying and, and, and godly. Um, so that's the, the ideal. I mean, of course I fall short of that in terms of my own ability to implement it, but that's, that's one of the big motivations is, you know, we are, we are called to be remain in this world in that sense, even if, you know, there are key ways in which we're not supposed to be of it. In that sense, it does. It's it's another manifestation of this idea of common grace. One of the things Kuiper talked about with common grace was it's an explanatory kind of a, a project for him. You know, given what we understand about the the radical nature of the fall into sin and the pervasiveness of that sin, and what we confess about the church and God's grace, redeeming grace in Jesus Christ, how can it be that just looking out objectively with our own eyes, there are all these kinds of attractive and good things that are out there in the world? And then when we look at the church, there's all these bad things. So, you know, common grace for Kuiper helps explain why the world turns out to be better than we might expect. And the church conversely turns out to be so much worse than we might expect, given the the shared fallen human nature, which is an emphasis of common grace. So in that sense, yeah, I'm, I'm out there looking for things that are good and, un, and perhaps unexpected, unexpected or um, places you might you might not otherwise be looking for them. Yeah, so you and I are, are both involved in contributing chapters to an edited volume about faith and film. It's a, a project in the works right now. I'm going to be writing on the Dark Knight trilogy, and you're going to be writing on something from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. When I'm thinking about my students at Calvin, Calvin definitely has, if we think about this as a continuum between, on the one end, well, we stay away from pop culture, we're not corrupted by the world, we don't you know, dance or play cards or, or go to movies. Uh, I want to say, in fact, earlier in Calvin's history, movies were forbidden, and and faculty would actually part of their duties would be go to go to the movie theaters and check and see if students were there. And Calvin has has done a one eighty on that to the point where the other side of the continuum, of course, is that we can use discernment to look at anything, right? right? That that you know you can and and my own background growing up was fairly conservative on what I would see. When I got to college, I used that discernment thing to think, oh, I can now watch anything I want and find a little pearl, perhaps a value amidst, yeah. you know, a truckload of stuff I didn't need to see. Um, how do you, how do you try and balance between those two extremes of, of cutting ourselves off from the culture that we are a part of and that forms us and that we should be uh, conversant with? And then almost a capitulation to the culture where, well, if it's trending or it's popular, if everyone's seeing it, then I should do it. And I'm thinking of a show or, you know, movie series, and maybe this will get me in trouble, I doubt, but like the Saw series or something, mm. or something that was, you know, had, had pretty strong elements of pornographic sexuality in it, and, and, but yet might have a really good philosophical point, right? Yeah. Um, how, do, how should Christians, and this is, this is a really practical question that, that my students wrestle with, that I still wrestle with. Um, how do we think about steering in between those two extremes? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to lay down a rule that would sort of be absolute in the sense that it's going to give you a clear yes or no on everything, right? It's going to all, everything's going to fit into one category. Either you can, you know, discerningly engage it or you have to totally avoid it. I mean, I think we can think of some examples like, like pornography and others that, you know, it, it's hard to think of a redemptive kind of discerning <laughs> approach to it. Right. There'd be some clear cases, yeah. but there, that doesn't mean that everything's clear. There'll be some 
borderline right so i well i think it's much more in terms of disposition and your own understanding of what your own weaknesses and temptations are too so in a way it's a path that we all have to walk and i'm interested in talking particularly about the kind of disposition that we have to have and the kind of disciplines and skills at discerning that we need to cultivate then i am like this is okay and this is not in terms of the particular thing so yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want it to sound like a cop out or anything, but I do think there's a sense in which we are called to each develop our own consciences, inform those, in light of the truth of the moral order and God's will. So there's a there's a subjective development dimension to that, in addition to the objective dimension to it. I think either of the extremes are obviously wrong, right? In the sense that we shouldn't be engaging it or discerningly engaging with it at all. And so a withdrawal kind of isolationist impulse on the one hand, and then a total capitulation being transformed by rather than transforming the culture kind of approach is clearly wrong too. And so in the middle between those two extremes, there's a a great deal of latitude for prudential discernment and individuals to find their own way. So I don't know how helpful that answer is. I think that's that's basically my own. No, I, I think that's helpful. I'd have two two responses. One is, you know, just uh, I'm thinking about Aristotle talks about how some of the sometimes one vice is worse than another. Like teetotalism might be a insufficient appreciation of the good of wine or whatever is, and drunkenness is the excess. But if you're going to have a vice, better the teetotalism than the the drunkenness. And I, I guess I'd rather I'd, I'd say the the Amish are probably healthier on this end of the continuum than, you know, the, the Christian Porn Review Association, which doesn't exist. But the other thing I guess I would say, or suggest or ask, I mean, you mentioned we do have to discern for ourselves, but that could also be a collaborative thing. Like if we do that just by, or like individually, we're all individually responsible, but we would go through that and perhaps be informed. I'm now sounding like my youth pastors when I was growing up in the 80s, but that we would do this together and, and seek, if we were doing it on our own, then I, at least I would be in trouble, that I need brothers and sisters to totally agree yeah and it's it's uh it it, that's that's a task that you do in conversation not only with the living but with the with the dead who still speak to us right the the living tradition in that sense of the our forebears who have come before it so when you read figures like kuiper who when he talks about art even though you know he's very positively disposed to engaging the world of art in some sense as a sovereign sphere um, that needs to be respected as an and as a a field for faithful Christian action in the world. He'll say things about the theater, you know, that are very like, he thinks the theater is really problematic and challenging and, and perhaps Christians shouldn't go to the theater. Right. You may end up disagreeing with him, but he probably has some things to teach you about holiness and discernment uh, in that rejection that you should grapple with and wrestle with. So when you read, a CRC statement, a synodical statement, and this gets back to the kind of corporate nature of the discernment that we're talking about. When when a synod warns against something, you should probably take that into account. It's not just about you and your ju- private judgment informed by your private reading of scripture. Right. These are all warnings and or exhortations that you should be taking into account and grappling with. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, I won't be a surprise to you or anyone who knows me well listening to this that I would I agree that it's important for for scholars to do the scholarly thing, but also to pay attention to popular culture. If we think about moral formation, the the exemplars we see in popular culture 
are going to be doing more work than Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative, at least until people get a lot older. When they get um, to your class. Uh, well, yeah, by then it's too late. Right? No, no, it's too late. Um, and hopefully I'm, I'm doing more, more uh, help than harm. But to conclude our discussion with a question about two moral exemplars from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, this is an ongoing sort of discussion you invite. And I'm going to give you, you know, the floor here um, of the millions of children and teens and people who have watched the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Why are they better off by admiring Captain America as opposed to Tony Stark, the Iron Man? What's your case for the superiority of, of Captain America and then we will, okay. we will conclude this uh, strange arc of conversation from in the weeds of Kuiper and, and bobbing sure. to Tony Stark. Well, in brief, uh, I think Cap embodies virtues. First name basis then, Cap. Yeah, right. Cap embodies virtues and Tony Stank, I mean Stark, um, embodies vices. You know, it's not that there's nothing that you can get or learn from Tony. It's not that he doesn't have, if you've you know kept current on all the movies, have... Uh, a redemptive arc or something like that. But I do think in general, Cap is much more of a positive moral exemplar in terms of embodying the virtues and much of the problems and evils that arise in the first few phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe are directly or indirectly the result of Tony's own vices uh, and shortcomings and weaknesses. So that's the, that's the, I mean, we could talk about all kinds of specific examples of that. But that's my basic judgment of the relative judgment of the two. The other thing I'll say is it's it's objectively true that Cap's trilogy is better than Iron Man's trilogy within the films. Yeah, and I'm 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 a I'm a fan of Captain America. What can I say? I might even name the uh, title my contribution to these essays that you were talking about earlier. I might have I might put Cap in the title of that my contribution to that. So we'll see. All right, so a combination of a, a virtue, ethics, and consequentialist <laughs> argument as to why well, uh, matter. America is superior to Tony Stark. Um, he said all these results of his decisions were, were did the work for you. I will refrain from countering that. Uh, if uh, Hopefully, if I'm fortunate to have you back on some point as a guest, we can pick that up again. But I, I hope for those of you listening, you can tell from our conversation that we've not exactly exhausted all that we could discuss Jordan, thank you for being the first guest for our second season of Henry Conversations. And for those of you who are listening, stay tuned for future episodes of Henry Conversations and visit the Henry Institute website to learn more about our programming this year, including the Kuiper Conference and Henry Symposium in April. My name is Micah Watson. We recorded this on Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. Thank you for joining us for another Henry Conversation.